Thank you, Bruce. And there is a short clip that we're going to watch that is especially uh, for the, the children in mind. So if you'd normally go out with Ian, then turn your attention to the screen. We're going to watch a little um, animation. We'll do that now. The Very Hungry Caterpillar. One Sunday morning, the warm sun came up and pop. Out of the egg came a tiny and very hungry caterpillar. He started to look for some food. through one apple. But he was still hungry. On Tuesday, he ate through two pears, but he was still hungry. Wednesday. On Thursday. But he was still hungry. On Saturday, he ate through one piece of chocolate cake, one ice cream cone, one pickle. 
one slice of Swiss cheese, one slice of salami, one lollipop. One piece of cherry pie, one sausage, one cupcake, and one slice of watermelon. That night he had a stomach ache. The next day was Sunday again. The caterpillar ate through one nice green leaf, and after that he felt much better. Now he wasn't hungry anymore, and he wasn't a little caterpillar anymore. He was a big fat caterpillar. He built a small house called a cocoon around himself. He stayed inside for more than two weeks. Then he nibbled a hole in the cocoon, pushed his way out, and he was a beautiful butterfly. So, the very hungry caterpillar, which is a bit of a favourite at, at our house, is um, it's all about a transformation, which is a big word meaning change, and a uh, it's an illustration that if you're a, somebody who's a bit younger who'd normally go out with Ian, keep that in mind because that's really the main idea. The Bible passage we're going to read talks about transformation in the Christian life how that works, what that looks like. So we've looked at the old theologians used to talk about the book of nature um, and the book of scripture as being two ways that we could know about God. We've looked at an example of transformation in the book of nature. Turn with me now to the book of scripture. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, and we're just looking at the first two verses, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. Well, the first word in that passage uh, is therefore, and therefore means as a result or as a consequence of what's just been said. So in order to put that in context, we need to work out what has just been said. 
The context of this short passage is Paul's letter to the Romans. And it would be great to spend more time in Romans as a church. Uh, it would be great if that's something that you could read in your own time this week. Um, the book of Romans was written in about AD 56 or 57. And even though it was before Paul had actually been to Rome, it's kind of a letter of introduction addressed to the Christian church at Rome. It's a great gift that we have because it's in fact the most detailed and rich exposition of the gospel message anywhere in the Bible. My very brief, very inadequate overview of the book of Romans is borrowed from John Stott, who's a commentator, um, and he says the first three chapters are all about the wrath of God, and then the next uh, eight chapters are all about the grace of God, and then the last four chapters are about the will of God. So we're starting the section, those uh, two verses, about the will of God. But it's interesting that Paul starts by discussing the wrath of God. And wrath means anger, but here it's, it's talking about God's anger. And God's anger is not like human anger. We're told in the book of James that the, the wrath of man does not work the righteousness of God. And yet here in Romans, in chapter 1, we're told that the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness. To read Romans chapter 1 is to be devastated by the effects of sin in our world. But sin is not just out there. Um, we actually need to confront what's in here. And we need to include ourselves in that when we're told that the wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness. We do need to feel the weight of that. It's unpopular to talk about the wrath of God, even in church. But what makes the gospel good news is, well, one of the things that makes the gospel the good news is understanding what we've been saved from, understanding how bad the bad news is. And that's why Paul starts with the bad news. There is a turning point, though. Um, in chapter 3, you get this beautiful verse that's a really good summary of the whole gospel. It says, uh, Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that's the bad news. There's a turning point mid-sentence. For all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by the free grace of God as a gift in the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And what you have there, you have a lot of big words, but it's the, the effects of grace. You have being justified, being declared to be righteous. You have the redemption being brought out of slavery. The image is really uh, the image of the children of Israel being brought out of Egypt. And you have the propitiation. You have Jesus' sacrifice effectively turning away the wrath of God that we deserved. So if we go back to our verses for today, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, that therefore refers to the whole sweep of God's plan for humanity, the whole sweep of redemption history. And it culminates in the powerful, effective sacrifice of the supremely valuable Son of God. Remember Romans 8, that great memory verse, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
We've just heard that, or Paul's listeners have just heard that before they get to this therefore. So that's grace. As a result of God's grace, we have a new life. Now, in fact, in Romans 12, our new life is expressed in contradictory terms. It's expressed as a living sacrifice. We heard last week that Jesus is the good shepherd, the one who lays his life down for the sheep. And Jesus is the good shepherd. He's also our Passover lamb. He's also the sacrifice itself. And the sacrifice is, in the Jewish tradition, it's an animal whose death brings some kind of restitution, some kind of atonement. While Jesus' atonement is unrepeated, it's singular, it's unique, there's a sense in which the pattern of the Christian life is the pattern of Jesus' life. As he's laid his life down, so we are to lay our lives down. Paul addresses this in Romans 6 when he says, Do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? As those who've been justified, our old self has been put to death. The struggle of the Christian life is that we still have a sinful nature. We still struggle with sin. And so we're told to be active, to put off our old self with all its sinful desires and to put on Christ. So we need to deny ourselves. We need to imitate Christ in that denial. Remember, Jesus himself tells his disciples that if anyone would follow me, let him take up his cross and, uh, and follow me. Let him take up his cross daily in Luke and follow me. So as our old self has been put to death, we are to live that out by dying to self, specifically to our sinful nature and its desires daily. This is not an optional extra. I was talking uh, to a few people the other week about Christianity as, a, as an insurance policy. Some of us might have had that view when we were younger, the insurance policy version of Christianity, where you say, yep, I'll take the justification, stick it in the back pocket, and you go on living your life totally unchanged. And of course, that's not the Christian life. The essence of the Christian life is this dying to self, this denial of self. The English Puritan writer John Owen said, be killing sin or it will kill you. There's that ongoing present tense there, be killing sin. This is something that's never finished as long as we're here on earth. The only proper response to what God in Christ has done for us is to continue to offer our lives as a living sacrifice. It's the only proper response. And the hymn writer had it exactly right when he said, Uh, Love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. How then are we to live? If we look at verse 2 of Romans 12, Paul elaborates for us a little bit. "Do Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Interestingly, the Greek word that's translated here as transformed is the very same word that's used to describe what happens to Jesus when he takes Peter, James and John up on the mount of, we call it the mount of transfiguration. But that word transfigured is transformed before them. And that's exactly the same word that's used in this passage. Clearly then, the transformation that's required is not actually a natural transformation. It's not like the caterpillar and the butterfly. It is a supernatural transformation that God 
by his grace, by the power of his Holy Spirit, brings about in the life of the Christian. We're told earlier in Romans that uh, the mind that is set on the flesh cannot submit to God's law. So renewing the mind just in our own power is actually impossible. No one understands, no one seeks for God. And then in Corinthians we're told that in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through its wisdom. Though we are told to renew our minds, we recognize that the transformation is a result of God's activity first. He supernaturally transforms us by his Holy Spirit. So to be transformed, we need that Holy Spirit. We need God's Holy Spirit who dwells within each believer from the moment they put their trust in Christ. At the same time, God uses natural means to do this. He actually tells us uh, in his word to renew our minds. That command, be transformed by the renewing of your minds, that assumes that we have control over our minds. Now, it tells us that the rational mind, the intellect, is a, is a gift from God. So Christianity should never be anti-intellectual. We need to recognize that God's given us minds and we should use them. But the renewing of the mind isn't just about filling our brains. It's not just about gathering knowledge for its own sake. In fact, the Bible has plenty to say about people who do that. Um, even in Romans, it says, um, professing to be wise, they became foolish. So it's not just about getting smart. Uh, it is in fact about the mind. The word mind there refers to the intellect or the rational mind, but also the desires, the will, our affections. The word repentance that's used throughout the New Testament means a turning or a changing of the mind. So the word repentance, that idea is very, very close in meaning to what it means to renew your mind. The challenge is, is your mind, is your will turned towards God or is it turned towards something or someone else? Remember, our mind can be uh, a means of our sanctification or it can condemn us according to what we turn it towards in Romans 1, God gave, us, God gave them over to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. So we need to choose. We make choices every day about what to turn our minds towards, what to listen to, what to read, what to watch or not watch. In a related passage in Ephesians chapter 4, we're told, uh, be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And that suggests that our minds are never simply neutral. We're always in the process of turning our minds towards God or away from him. In Romans 8, Paul sets up this choice when he says that to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. And Paul's not setting up a conflict between somehow the physical realm uh, and the, the spirit realm. Plenty of Greek philosophers thought that way, but there's no uh, sense of that in the Bible. What he's really saying is he's using flesh there to mean human endeavor, human life without God, apart from God. And he's saying that to renew our mind, we must set it on something. We must consciously turn to God. We must seek him in his word. 
The renewing of our mind, then, is not something that happens automatically the moment we're born again. If I could unpack a couple of those words that I've already used, um, but Paul uses them, they're big words, justification and sanctification. We referred to justification as God's legal declaration, if you like, in the heavenly courtroom, as it were, that you are not guilty, that because of what Christ has done, you have peace with God. And not only that, but you actually are credited with the righteousness of Jesus. It's an incredible thing. And we talk about being saved, and often that's kind of what people have in mind. There's a sense in which we have been saved, but we are also being saved. We are actually being sanctified. So sanctification is God's will for us, we're told in Thessalonians. Sanctification simply means the state of being set apart. So justification for the Christian has happened, but sanctification is ongoing. Uh, an illustration for what it means to be sanctified would be the, the wedding dress. Uh, I know my wife spent a lot of time and effort uh, getting somebody to design her wedding dress, um, which was actually her mum's wedding dress. So there was all sorts of trips to the dressmaker and refittings and remodelings. But the wedding dress is a beautiful image of what it means to be set apart. Because every part of that dress, every aspect of its design points towards one single purpose. There's no other day that Katie could have worn that dress. There's no other day that she uh, did wear that dress. It was set apart and she set it apart for that particular purpose. As we renew our minds, therefore, we are being set apart. As we look at the glory of the Lord, as we turn ourselves towards him in those daily practices of repentance, confessing our sins in prayer and studying his word, we are being transformed for a purpose. And the sanctification is God's purpose. It's God's will for our life. We don't need to get too anxious worrying about what God's will for our life is. That's his will. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, we're told that uh, we are being transformed into the image of Christ from one degree of glory to another. Christians are not perfect. There's plenty of evidence uh, in my own experience. There's plenty of biblical evidence. I'm sure you probably don't have to think too hard to find evidence in your experience to confirm that Christians can and do, sadly, still sin. But the overall trajectory of the Christian life is a gradual, ongoing, not perfect, but upwards trajectory. It's, a, it's an ongoing transformation with a particular direction that's moving us from what we were, that's transforming us, in fact, from what we were to who we are in Christ. We have been justified, we are being sanctified, and we will be glorified. Uh, there's lots more I could say by way of application. Um, it would actually be good if, as we continue to share and, and uh, talk to each other over morning tea and after the service, perhaps you could share uh, ways that you set aside this time to be sanctified. What are some strategies that you use? What are some things you've read or listened to that you find helpful as you seek to be encouraged, as you seek to be transformed by the Word of God in those daily practices? But it'd be good to end there um, 
To sum up, our efforts to renew our minds are a vital part of the Christian life. It does take effort. It does take cost. uh, And we need to do those things. But the Christian life is impossible apart from the ongoing, sustaining, restoring work and presence of God's Holy Spirit. Given as our helper from the moment we are made alive in Christ. We're going to be investigating who the Holy Spirit is and and what his work is in the life of the Christian more uh, over the coming weeks. And we're going to pray now for his power and presence as we seek the glory of God, the imitation of Christ in the renewing of our minds. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for what you've called us to. We thank you that we are justified in Christ and therefore that we have peace with God. Lord, we seek your will. We seek to be sanctified. We know we're not perfect. We know that we struggle with sin. And yet we know as well that your Holy Spirit dwells within us and he is transforming us constantly. He goes with your word to change us from what we were to who we are in Christ. We ask for his power in our lives as we encourage one another here today as we worship you, but as our lives are laid down in sacrifice to you, which is our true and proper worship. As we go out of here into the world, we ask for your blessing. We ask that you would keep us sanctified and changing all the the time into your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. sing this next song um, in response to what Sam shared with us this morning, actually reference the last verse of this song. Um.